0: Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hope Church Toronto West. It is our prayer that through these audio sermons you are challenged and transformed by the word of God, built up in love and faith and drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now as you prepare your heart to receive God's word, we pray that his spirit would use the sermon powerfully in your life. Good morning church. All right. Awesome. I'm very glad to be here with you this morning. My name is Thaddeus. I get the pleasure of being your Director of Media and Discipleship Classes. And this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 110. Psalm 110. So turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 110. So, by way of introduction, boys are rambunctious and energetic, right? Uh, Little boys just want to fight want to conquer something, want to charge into battle. Actually, uh, my little godson, Aaron, uh, he will find anything and make a weapon from it. Be it a stick, his sister's curling iron, perhaps, or mommy's hairdryer. he's going to find something and make a weapon from it and just charge raging into battle and try to defeat some foe, perhaps his sister's garden plants, or maybe Marcus, his older brother. This is what little boys do, right? They want to charge into battle. They want to be warriors. And this is part of what it means also to be a man. Little boys are playing out what uh, is inherent in their manhood in play, right? Uh, But when our manhood, when manliness is harnessed for good means, men can protect the vulnerable. Men can fight for things that are right, for freedom, for justice, for righteousness. Men can stand up in societies. But when it's corrupted, it can go really, really wrong. But at the end of the day, Men want to be warriors. You might be wondering, what does this have to do with this psalm? Well, this psalm is about the ultimate warrior, Christ. And he's the one who wages war to save the damsel, his bride, the church. And he defeats the dragon, the devil, and all of his foes. This is the ultimate warrior psalm. This is the psalm that men should love to read. And this balance is actually our view of Jesus, perhaps. Our culture maybe has a view of Jesus that might be not the full picture. Uh, you see on a lot of pictures, this gentle Jesus, meek and mild, right? Looking like a shampoo hair commercial. And he's got long flowing locks, blue eyes, and maybe a lamb on his shoulder. Now, that's one aspect of the incarnation, don't get me wrong. But that's not the whole picture. Jesus didn't just stay as a baby. And he didn't just stay as meek and mild Jesus. He is risen. He's risen today and he's ascended now to the right hand of the Father. This psalm actually gives us the view of Jesus that we see perhaps in Revelation 19, where Jesus there is riding in on a white stallion. He's tattered up. He's got King of Kings and Lord of Lords on his thigh. He's got a fire coming out of his eyes, a sword, and he's got a robe dipped in the blood of his enemies, and he's leading heaven's armies. This is what this psalm gives us a sight of. You know, this is the Jesus that the manliest of men and the matchiest of men have to bow to, and the wisest of men have to follow and will willingly follow, as we'll see in the Psalm. So let's jump now to Psalm 110 in your Bibles. Read with me. Hear now the words of this sovereign and the only God. It says this, a Psalm of David, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Such a good psalm. And I have to give you a little bit of context before we jump into today's exposition. Because we need to understand the context of every single scripture that we go through. Now, the Davidic covenant is a very important theme that runs throughout the Psalms. It's actually one of the things that gives unity to the book of Psalms. And the Davidic covenant was basically God's promise to David that he will always have a descendant that will sit. On the throne. Actually, that a descendant will eternally sit on that throne, a descendant of David. Now, this psalm is also, I don't know if you know this, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. So, if there ever was a Bible passage that you could say is God's favorite Bible passage, it might be this one. And I feel like I'm cheating a little bit because this psalm is quoted perhaps at least 27 times by some uh, commentators' counts. Therefore, The New Testament is an inspired commentary on this psalm. So as we dig into the psalm, I'm going to be using from the New Testament to expound what's the true meaning of this psalm. Actually, this is really important because this is one of those psalms that is unapologetically, unmistakably a messianic psalm, meaning that it points to Israel's long-for Messiah. It's one of those psalms that you can't mix up any other way. How is it that this Lord, this Adonai, is being invited to sit at the Lord's right hand. That's a place of power and majesty. But also he's a priest and he's going to have that forever. And then he, he does what only God does and judges nations. This psalm can't be applied to David or any of his progeny. This psalm is clearly a messianic psalm. And actually this confused and puzzles a lot of rabbis because of this same thing. They, they looked at this and were like, what do we do with this? And there was a lot of different theories around it. Now Jesus himself saw this psalm in relation to himself. In Matthew uh, chapter 22, he's having a confrontation as he normally does with the, the Pharisees, and they ask him about uh, the Messiah. Is he David's son? And, you know, Jesus basically tells them, well, how is it if he's David's son that David in the spirit says that the Lord said to this one who's David's son, sit in my right hand. So he's clearly above David somehow. So clearly, this Messiah is not just only merely human. See, there's a lot of Psalms in the book of Psalms. Some Psalms are battle psalms, meaning they're songs that are sung pleading for God to fight on their behalf as the Israelites go into battle. Some psalms are enthronement psalms. They're meant to be sung at uh, enthronement ceremony when a king is established, right? This psalm is both, is the enthronement of the ultimate king who leads his people into battle. So if you've got your notebooks, write this down. The Lord's Jesus Christ, firstly, is this. He's seated. He is seated. He's enthroned at the Lord's right hand, verse 1. Now, before we read verse 1 here, I have to note something here. In our English translations, it sometimes can confuse us a little bit because it's translating two different words with the same word Lord. So if you look in your Bibles, if you have an ESV, you'll see that Lord is sometimes all caps or sometimes has common letters. And that's distinguishing between two different words in Hebrew. One is Yahweh, which is the proper name, at least our modern uh, 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 approximation of what it would have been pronounced. That's the the name of God. It revealed to Israel in the Exodus, right? And the other word is Adonai, which is just a more uh, generic sort of term for master or Lord. So if we were to read verse one, it would say this, Yahweh says to to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this is the enthronement. What we're seeing here in verse one, this is the enthronement of that Seed of David, that Davidic uh, descendant of David, being eternally enthroned above. Now, this term here, the right hand of God, what does that mean? On the screen for you, the right hand of God is a symbol for a couple of things in Scripture. It's a symbol for God's power, for his power. It's a symbol also for his protection, for his presence, for salvation, for victory, for defeat of enemies, and the mighty works of God is, is carried out by his right hand. And it's also a symbol for judgment. So this Adonai, whoever he is, being invited to sit at God's right hand, is being invited to share in all of these things. It's a place of power. It's a place of sharing authority with God. Now let's turn to the inspired commentary on this psalm. Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews, he uses this psalm unapologetically in reference to Jesus Christ in chapter 1. And he says that, therefore, because of this, because this psalm is actually truly fulfilled in Christ, therefore, Christ is actually even more exalted than the angels. Actually, in verse 13, he says, but to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He's quoting from this psalm. And he's saying, look, this is Jesus. It can't be the angels. Because to what angel did he ever say that? This psalm is in relationship to Christ. Now, the logical question that we should have is when? When was Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father? When did this happen? Well, again, we have inspired commentary on this because some there's some Christians who say that, well, Jesus Christ isn't Lord yet. He's not king yet. His kingdom is not yet. The devil is the ruler of this age and the ruler of this world. Now, is that, though, what we see in the Bible? I'll point you to Matthew's Gospel because Matthew's gospel is actually written to a Jewish audience. That's why throughout Matthew's gospel, you see the common phrase, this was done to fulfill scripture, and then it will quote scripture. Matthew's gospel was meant to show Jews that Jesus was the Messiah and that he is Israel's true king. And if you look throughout Matthew's gospel and follow the narrative of Jesus' life, there in Matthew 4, you see the first time Jesus comes on the scene in public ministry, he declares what? Repent. Why? So the kingdom of God is far off in the future? No, is at hand, is at hand, right at the beginning of his ministry. And then fast forward to Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is casting out demons. And he says, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, the kingdom has come among you. Did Jesus Christ cast out demons by the spirit? Yes. So the kingdom had come among them. And not only that, later on in that chapter, he tells a little parable. He says like, listen, if there's a strong man, You can't plunder this guy's house. You can't rob this guy's house unless someone stronger than him first comes and ties him up. Jesus says, yo, I'm that strong man. I'm the guy who tied up the devil and plundered and steal his stuff. Jesus Christ is establishing his kingdom in his ministry on earth. And by the time the end of Matthew's gospel, after the cross and resurrection, chapter 28, as he's giving his great commission to his disciples, he says what? All authority. In heaven and on earth, not just in heaven, and on earth, all of it. Is who's? Satan's? No. Christ's. All authority is mine, he says. So Jesus Christ right now is seated at the Lord's right hand. And this is also continued throughout the New Testament. If you need more scripture, let's go to the inspired commentary, Philippians 2. Paul says there of Christ's humiliation that he he humbled himself and became like a servant who was crucified and raised and resurrected, and now what? He's given the name that is above every other name. Every Jew would have known what that name was. That name only belonged to Yahweh. Only Yahweh's name was the name above every other name, and to which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. That name is given to Jesus after his resurrection. Paul, in Ephesians 1, it's on your screen, says this about Christ's resurrection. He says, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. See, it's from our text. And in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things, how many things? All, under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Acts 2, as the apostles are preaching the gospel for the first time to Jews that are gathered at, Pente- at Pentecost in Jerusalem. Peter actually uses this psalm as his sermon text. And he uses it to prove Jesus' exaltation. And he concludes his message with this in Acts 2, verse 36. He says, let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, he says to the Jews. And what happens? They're cut to the heart. They realize this is the Christ that we've crucified. And they cry out, what shall we do? And they're called to repentance and baptism in the name of Christ for forgiveness. Peter later on in his letters to the church, says in 1 Peter 3, he says that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So, according to the teaching of the apostles, Christ's resurrection and ascension is proof, proof positive that he is enthroned right now as king of kings and lord of lords. And he reigns over everything now. Let that sit for a moment. Because that has massive implications for our lives. Massive. Robert Letham, in his systematic theology says this. is not on your screen. He says, a victorious king would travel throughout his territory, establishing and confirming his rule in every place throughout his domain so Christ's realm is universal. He has ascended far above the heavens and, is not, and now fills all things. He has passed through his territory and has one authority throughout his realm. So another question then, we asked, uh, when did this happen? Well, what is he doing right now? If he's at God's right hand, what is Christ doing right now? Well, we also have inspired commentary to tell us. What is Christ doing at God's right hand? Romans 8 verse 34 says that he's advocating for us before the Father, so that no one can condemn us. The reason why, saints, you cannot be condemned by any accusation of the enemy is because you have an intercessor at the right hand of the Father advocating for you. He's showing, these are the scars, these are the the wounds that I took to pay this one's debt. Also, Acts 5 verse 31 says that he's granting right now from his place of authority repentance and forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ is right now Lord. And it's not up to whether we will make him Lord or anyone will have the opinion that he is Lord. He is objectively Lord. And it's actually the basis of our proclamation of the gospel. When Jesus gives the commission, he says, all authority has been given to him, therefore go. It's the basis of our gospel proclamation. And it also means that this gospel is not just an invitation. It's a command. It's a summons. Because we speak as heralds for the King of Kings. We say, Repent. God has commanded now, Acts 17, God has said that all men everywhere must repent. The gospel is a command that goes out with divine authority from this risen king. And you can try to fight that lordship and be broken by him and be made a footstool. Or you can submit joyfully to this good king. He's a good monarch who will rule and and serve you well joyful obedience to this king, and become part of his kingdom. C.H. Berger, that great uh, preacher, he said, even now, he, Christ, is reigning, though all his enemies are not yet subdued. His dominion is in no jeopardy, otherwise he wouldn't, he wouldn't remain quiet. Therefore, there's no cause for alarm. Whatever may happen in this lower world, the sight of Jesus enthroned in divine glory is the sure guarantee that all things are moving on towards ultimate victory. Those rebels who now stand high in power shall soon be in the place of contempt. They shall be his footstool. And what a comfort for us. If you're in Christ, you've got that warrior on your side. And though all the world we see so much tribulation and trials, so much uh, things happening that can be worrying and concerning for us, is Christ disturbed? No, he's still seated seated at the right hand. And notice what our text says. You have to read this very carefully. It says, until I make your enemies your footstool. So quickly, what's a footstool? Well, according to the Expositive Bible Commentary, it says to make the enemies a footstool is an ancient Near Eastern metaphor for absolute control. Originally, the victorious king placed his feet on the necks of his vanquished foe. From this practice arose the idiom of making one's enemies one's footstool. And notice again in the text, it says, until he's going to sit at God's right hand, until he has made all his enemies his footstool. So Kenneth Gentry uh, commentates this way. He says, clearly, this text here anticipates Christ's enemies being subjugated by him. But, but listen now, he does this while sitting at the right hand of God. It says, sit until, not in arising, leaving heaven and returning to earth at the second advent. You see, this text is telling us that this is being worked out in history. And there's actually inspired commentary on that as well. What does this look like? What does the flow of history look like? Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 actually uses this text to tell us. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, it's up on your screens. He says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Why? For he must reign until when? Until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated or destroyed is death. So the flaw of history from the apostle is that Christ is reigning now, and he's putting under his feet every enemy, and the last enemy that is going to be destroyed, the death of death, will be death. And then comes the end. You see, therefore, this means that Christ's reign. It extends to the end of history. There's never going to be a time where his reign stops or his pause. It extends from now till the end, end of history, which comes after he has subdued all of his enemies and finally put to death, death. Now you might be wondering, this doesn't look like it's happening, Dad. I look around today, there's so much things going on in our world. Our world seems to be going down. It seems like the, the, the kingdom is, is, is on the retreat. That might be true for where we stand in history. Uh, But John Calvin actually commented this. I thought it was helpful. He said, when we look at what is before our eyes, we cannot but conclude that the kingdom of Christ is about to fall in ruin. But the promise made in this psalm takes away all our fear because Christ shall not leave his seat at the Father's right hand until he has prostrated his last enemy to the ground. You see, this process is gradual. It's incremental. It takes time. And God's timeline is not like ours. Psalm 90 says that, uh, and also uh, for, uh, 2 Peter 3 says that a thousand years is as a day to the Lord. God is not on our timelines. Our lives are so small and minuscule in the time of, timeline of history and of eternity. Uh, and this is not a new idea, by the way. I could give you lots of uh, early church fathers who write this way. Take, for example, Augustine in the 5th century. He says this, he therefore, meaning Christ, sits at the right hand of God, till his enemies be placed beneath his feet. This is going on. This is taking place. Augustine's writing this in the 5th century. Although it is accomplished by degrees, it is going on without end. For the heathens rage. Will Will they, taking counsel together against Christ, prevent the fulfillment of these words? I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the utmost part of the earth for thy possession. Augustine there is actually using another psalm, another messianic psalm, Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, we see that the nations are raging against the Lord's anointed. In Hebrew, literally, Messiah, right? Against the Lord's Messiah. And what is God doing when the nations rage? He's laughing. He's like looking down and be like, (laughs) oh, that's cute. He's laughing. And then he says, I will make the nations your inheritance to this Messiah. We have no. Need to fear. God is still on the throne. He's accomplishing this in history. The nations may rage, but God is laughing. And He will accomplish His purposes. So, firstly, we see from this text that Jesus Christ, He is seated. That's good news. He is Lord of lords, King of kings, enthroned above. And secondly, this, that He wields the scepter. He wields the scepter. That means that He's ruling now, verses 2 to 4. It reads this way. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your, meaning Adonai's, mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. We see here an image of a scepter. What does it mean? What is a scepter? Well, this image first appears in Genesis 49, where the promise is given to uh, Judah that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And it's taken up in Numbers 24 and Psalm 45. You can go there later and check it out. But this scepter is a symbol of power. And this power is sent out, the text says, from Zion. What is Zion? Zion is where God's people dwell, where they gather for worship. It's where the temple was. So we know that this scepter is a symbol of God's power and it issues forth from Zion, meaning the place where his people gather for worship. And Paul in Romans uh, 1.16 says that the gospel is God's power unto salvation. And Isaiah Chapter 2, verse 3 and 11, verse 4 says that this rod, this scepter, is actually God's word. Actually, in Isaiah 2, 3, I'll just read it for you. It says this, out of Zion, so just like our text, out of Zion shall go forth the law. Go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You see, the scepter being issued from Zion here in our text is fulfilled in the gospel, in God's word going out from the church. See, Christ's power is in heaven. He's seated. Christ's power is in heaven, but is exercised on earth through his people via his word, the proclamation of his word, both in preaching and in our witness. Christ's power is in heaven, is exercised on earth through his people, through his word. Now, notice the text again. It says, in the midst of your enemies. Because sometimes we think about God's rule as if, you know, annihilate everybody peace and then that's his rule. But this text actually says rule, not in peace, but in the midst of your enemies. Right? in the How is this effectuated now? It's in the hearts. It's in the hearts of those who were once rebellious. You know, the Bible says that we were all once enemies of Christ. We all were led astray by various passions. We all hated God, hated his word, and we went rebellion, open rebellion, myself included, to this Christ. But he establishes his rule in the midst of his enemies, not by destroying them, but by subduing them, so that they would become willing servants. That's actually what verse 4 is about. You see, it's a more difficult task to make enemies friends than to just destroy them. Because any human might can just destroy and crush men. But it takes the power of God to convert men. Psalm 23 is another place where you see this this theme come out of God in the midst of of your enemies, what? Laying a table before us. Now, how confident do you have to be as a ruler to, in the midst of your enemies, set up a picnic? That's the type of confidence that this God has. He prepares a table for us in the midst of our enemies. And you know what? We just partook of that table. In the Lord's Supper, you come to fellowship, to table fellowship with the Lord, in the midst of his former enemies right now. You were all made friends. This is what God is doing today. And we see here, and as we continue our text, verse 3. Verse 3 is one of those verses that gets people tripped up, right? And a part of it is because the Hebrew is actually a little bit obscure for a bunch of grammatical reasons that I'm not going to bore you with, right? But verse 3 is basically about an army of priestly troops. Different translations translate this differently. The NIV, I think, actually gets to the meaning really well. I'll read it for you. It says this, your troops will be willing on the day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. Right? The ESV, when it translates it, it attributes the youth to Adonai, but actually the text, the, the word there, Yaldoth, right, is actually a collective noun. It's it's in reference to the troops, to these youth, these young men. And on the screen for you is a picture. Now, the Psalms they communicate to us in word pictures. And the word picture that you should have as you read verse 3 is this. That just as you look at this picture of grass with dew on every single blade, right? That's, a, that's an image of what? Refreshment, vibrance, vitality. But also it tells us something about the troops, that the troops are like the dew on the morning grass. So numerous and seem to appear out of nowhere. You ever look at dew form in the morning? It literally comes out of thin air. And this is what his troops are like. And the gospel call is actually this clarion call for this vibrant, willing army to assemble. As the gospel goes out and people respond, this army assembles almost as if out of nothing to serve their commanding officer. John Frame on your screen says this, The gospel creates new people who are committed to Christ in every area of their lives. People like these will change the world. They will fill and rule the earth for the glory of Jesus. They will plant churches and establish godly families. They will also establish hospitals schools, arts, and sciences. This is what has happened. And by God's grace, this is what will continue to happen until Jesus comes. Now notice something else about this army that's assembling. They're not clothed with what you would expect, which is armor. What are they clothed with? It says holy garments. This is actually priestly garments. This is a fulfillment actually of what Isaiah said in Isaiah 61 and Exodus also said in Exodus 19, that God's people... He would make them a kingdom of priests. And First Peter, the Apostle Peter, applies that to the church, to you and me, to believers of Jesus Christ. He says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. If you are a Christian today, you are part of that royal priesthood. You're part of this priestly army in our text. Today, there's assembling, And you are set apart for his service. Let me ask you this, church. Do you act like it? Does your life look like that? Do you have your priestly garments on? Are you set apart, sanctified for holy use of your Lord? So what does this mean? Let me draw some applications for us in this text. What does it mean for us as Christians? Well, firstly, it means this. That we're in wartime. We are in wartime. The text says, in the midst of opposition. Now look around. Perhaps you don't believe that we're in wartime. Look around a little bit. Evolution is being taught in our schools. It's basically telling our kids that they're animals, evolved animals, and then we're surprised when they act like it. Right? Our culture continues to emasculate men and call their masculinity toxic. But as we've seen in the introduction, Masculinity is not necessarily toxic. When used for God's ends, it can be a glorious thing. We're confused even about just basic categories of male and female. That, As Romans 1 says, as we continue in sin, this culture continues in sin, our thinking becomes futile and our minds become debased. Now, we also see Marxist philosophies, which have actually led in history to the deaths of over 100 million people under dictators like Mao and Stalin and Paul Potts. We see these philosophies actually being taught now in schools and educations, uh, in institutions and universities, and even through media. There's things like critical race theory which, uh, and, and anti-racism, which borrow off of these philosophies that are being actually instituted into law. Bill 67 right now in Canada is looking to implement that in every single school. We are at war, yet the Bible gives us the answer for racism. It says that All partiality is wrong. It doesn't matter of skin color, of any other marking identifier, all partiality is wrong. You guys probably know this as you're in your workplaces going through diversity, equity and inclusion training. We are in a war. The culture is rapidly turning more and more, not just dispassionate about Christianity, but against Christianity. We have loss of fundamental freedoms and rights as we drift from the Judeo-Christian foundations that our societies were built on. We have postmodernism where truth is just said that it's relative. That's just true for you. What's true for you is true for you, but what's true for me is true for me. That's just the same lie that the serpent told in Genesis 3 being rehashed today. Did God really say we have no objective ground for, for, for truth anymore? And yet, even though we're in this wartime, we have men sitting around playing video games all day, perhaps addicted to porn, chasing down virtual conquests when God has called them to real-world dominion and conquest. Not for their own kingdom, but for Christ's kingdom. We have to awaken. You see, it's appropriate for a little boy like Aaron, like my godson, to be uh, battling imaginary dragons. That's good. That's good for a little boy to do. But you better bet, that if he's still doing that when he's 21, Tristan and I, his dad and I, are going to have a real serious talk with that boy. But that's what's happening with a lot of our men. And let me not just lay into the men. This is happening in society. Why? Just wake up. We are in wartime. Robert Letham he notes this. He says, Christ's redemptive work is portrayed as a progressive subjugation of his enemies until the very last enemies are abolished at his coming. During this time, the church destroys opposing arguments and leaves every thought captive to obey Christ. It is more than doubtful that the devil considers the world of human culture to be a common kingdom. It's even less likely that Christ, given all authority in heaven and on earth, will restrict his lordship to the religious sphere only, or consider the world that he created and maintains to be a lost cause. On your screen, he continues and says this, We are in a war. There's an enemy. That enemy is no gentleman prepared to play by the rules and on a level playing field. When the world around us is relinquished to a supposedly neutral common kingdom, that enemy will seize control and in many ways has done so and is increasingly advancing. You see, if you think that there's some sort of neutral ground where you can just stand on the sidelines and be not involved, you're being lied to. There's no neutral ground. We are, either you are part of these troops that Christ is assembling, or you're on the other side. Jesus himself himself says that either you're with him or against him. You're either gathering or scattering. What else does it mean for us? It means that we've also been freely enlisted. You've been freely enlisted. Saints, if you are a follower of Christ, you've been freely enlisted. This means that we are right now the church militant. And by militant, I don't mean that we are aggressive and that we are um, antagonistic against people, what I mean is that we realize that we are in a war. What I'm not saying also, hear me well, what I'm not saying is not that leisure and relaxation are necessarily wrong. Okay? Get that right. I'm not saying that leisure and relaxation are necessarily bad or evil. I'm just saying this. It has a different priority when you realize that you're on the battlefield. Like, think about it. If you got, like, some soldier on the battlefield, and, like, bullets are whizzing past his head... Do you really think that he's worried about his Netflix subscription or about what's on Disney Plus? No, it just has a different priority. It's not that that thing is wrong necessarily, but he's got his priorities in order because he realizes where he's at. We're not called to be reserves waiting for the battle. We're already in it. You're on the front lines right now, right? So the more that you awake to the reality of the spiritual battle that's around us every day, the more these leisure activities which are given as a good gift of God, the more these leisure activities naturally will find their rightful place and priority in your life. We've got to get our priorities straight. Paul says to his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2, he says, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men. Are you a faithful man right now? Who will be able to teach others also? Let me ask you, who are you discipling? Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who has enlisted him. That's our MO. That should be our MO today, saints. Are you entangled in civilian pursuits? Reflect on your life. What does this battle look like for you in your workplace, in your school, maybe even in your families? Are you training to be battle ready do you know your sword? This, Ephesians 6, this is the sword of the Spirit. Do you know your Bibles? Can you wield that sword effectively? Do you have the belt of truth on or are your pants falling down? You see, one of the problems that we as Christians often will struggle with is cowardliness. That we do see the battle around us, but we prefer to check out, to distance ourselves from those front lines. Cowardliness is a real issue. And let me tell you, lovingly, that cowardliness should not be a mark of God's people. Actually, in Revelation 21, it says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Notice that the first thing on that list is cowards. We're not meant to be coward saints. God's word calls us over and over to not be afraid. Fear not. Put your trust in God. We're called to boldness, to brave action for the Lord. Hebrews 12 says this, that we are to lay aside every weight and sin and to run the race that is before us, looking to Jesus Christ, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who is at the right hand of God. Again, it's boring from this text, right? Now, laying aside sins is pretty obvious to us, right? We need to repent of sin. Yeah, get that. But notice that the author of Hebrews says you need to lay aside two things. Sins and every weight. Weights are not sins, but they're things that hold you back from running the race. Are there things in your life right now that are holding you back from running the race that is before you? Are there things that are entangling you, that are preventing you from devoting your life wholly to his service? Lastly, this. In terms of application from us, we have also not just um, have to realize that we're in wartime and that we're freely enlisted, but also we have salvation. Verse 4, we have a great high priest. Verse 4 says this, it says, Yahweh has sworn I will not change his mind. You, speaking to Adonai, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. After the order of Melchizedek. Who is this guy? Melchizedek. Well, he first appears to us in Genesis 14. There, he's actually a priest-king figure who Abraham pays, pays tithe to, right? And uh, this, this verse would have confused Jews. You know why? Because they knew that God commanded that these offices were not to be mixed. You couldn't have a king who was also a priest, who was also a prophet. The three theocratic offices of Israel were not to be mixed, prophet, priest, and king. And just as a side note, that's why in our systems of government, we have separations of power, right? Because Absolute power corrupts. Now, the Israelites, the Jews, they would have been confused about this verse because this guy, up to, the, up to, up to now in our text, is a king. Clearly, he's conquering, and he has troops. He's a king. But now, verse 4 tells us he's also a priest, and a priest forever. And he's after this other priestly line. He doesn't come from Aaron's line and the Levites. He comes from this line of Melchizedek. And he's given his priesthood, not by lineage of birth, but actually, by divine oath, it says that Yahweh has sworn to him and will not change his mind. And not only that, if you look at the name Melchizedek, there's significance to that. Melchizedek is a comp- compilation of two Hebrew words. One which, Melchizedek, which means uh, my king, and to Sedek, which means righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. And if you go to Genesis 14, it also says that he's the prince of Salem. Now, all my Arabic speakers might recognize that, Salam. So another Semitic language means peace. He's the Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ, after the order of Melchizedek, is our King of Righteousness and Prince of Peace. He's actually the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 6 about this righteous branch that would come up and this Messiah, this righteous branch, would be a priest-king. The psalm is bringing together all of these different things and the New Testament shows us its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Paul says that all the promises of God find their yes and amen. And who? Jesus. All of it was pointing to Christ. He's the only one that can bear all the offices without corruption because he's without sin. He's the only one who's the prophet, priest, and king all at the same time. All of those things pointed towards him and find this fulfillment in him. Now, you might be asking, what does a priest do? We don't have a whole lot of those here today, unless you're Catholic, but that's another story. What does a priest do? On your screen, this is what a priest does. Firstly, he empathizes with us. Hebrews tells us this. He helps us in our temptation because he's made like us. He represents us to God. That he, in being the God-man, both deity and humanity join together. He represents us to God. He enters the most holy place in heaven. And he makes one sacrifice, this once-for-all atonement for sin. Hebrews 10 says this, And every priest, this is speaking of the Levitical, the Old Testament priest, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. It's done. Our work is done. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool. That's boring from our text again. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, because Jesus is this priest forever after the order of Melchizedek who offers this perfect sacrifice for his people on our behalf. The author of Hebrews in chapter seven says that he's the guarantor of a better covenant than the old. And it says in verse, in verse 25 that consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost, meaning he's able to save as much as you can be saved, those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives, why? To make intercession for them. He lives to make intercession for you if you put your faith in him. If you sinned and you feel the, the condemnation of the enemy in your ear, tell him that I have an intercessor for me at the right hand of God who pleads my case. And if there's anybody's prayers who will be answered, do you not think it's the son of God? That's the type of, of of assurance that we have of our salvation as Christians. So today, if you hear his voice, as the author of Hebrews says, don't harden your hearts. Repent and trust in him as your high priest. This is actually why we just sung that song that we sung today. It's a lovely song. It's a song, the only song I know actually that, that is about Christ's uh, high priestly intercession on our behalf. It says, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, Whoever lives and pleads for me, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. The last verse says, one with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. Christ, my savior, and my God. Is that you today? Do you have this high priest interceding for you? So we see that Jesus Christ is seated, we see that He wields the scepter, and lastly this, we see that He will shatter his enemies. He will shatter his enemies. He's going to bring judgment. Verses five to seven it says, "The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth." These verses show us God as the mighty warrior, from passages like Isaiah 42 and 59 right? Except is Yahweh. Instead of Yahweh, it is Adonai who is being called this mighty warrior that is at the right hand of Yahweh. He is actually this El-Gebor, the mighty one who fights on his people's behalf. Now, the Hebrew here is interesting. Hebrew is not like English where we have very clear um, past, present, future in our verbs, right? Uh, Hebrew is a little bit different, And I won't bore you on our grammar lesson, but it's in a perfect tense, the katal form of the verbs. And it can be interpreted either as future or a timeless present, which is interesting for our interpretation here, because you could read verse 5 as he will shatter kings or as he has shattered kings. And there's precedence for this. There's actually New Testament commentary on this in, in Colossians 2. It says that, And you, who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The cross was V Day, was victory day for Jesus. That's when he shattered all of his enemies. It's interesting. I want to illustrate this from history. There's this uh, emperor, this Roman emperor, Diocletian. A picture of him is up on your screen. Um, he's a proud guy. Diocletian boasted all throughout the empire that he had wiped out Christianity. He actually set up two monuments, two huge monuments in Spain with this inscription boasting, I have exterminated Christianity. How's that working out for We're in here, clearly did not work. William S. Plummer actually comments on this on the, 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 how the Roman emperors tried to extinguish Christianity. He says this: "Of 30 Roman emperors, governors and provinces and others in high office, who distinguished themselves by their zeal and bitterness in persecuting the early Christians, one became speedily deranged after some uh, atrocious cruelty. One was slain by his own sword, by his own son, sorry. One became blind. The eyes of one started out of his head. Um, One was drowned. One was strangled. One died of miserable captivity. One fell dead in a manner that will not bear recital. Uh, One died of some loathsome disease that several of his physicians were put to death because they couldn't abide the stench that filled his room. Two committed suicide. A third attempted it but had to call for help to finish the work. Five were assassinated by their own people or servants. Five others died the most miserable and excruciating deaths several of them having an untold complication of diseases, and eight were killed in battle or after being taken prisoners. Among these was Julian the apostate. In the days of his prosperity, he said to have pointed his dagger to the heavens, defying the Son of God, whom is commonly called the Galilean. But when he was wounded in battle, he saw that, the, that all was over, and he gathered up his clotted blood and threw it into the air and exclaimed, Thou hast conquered, O thou! Galilean. So it's been throughout history. Every empire that has tried to slay Christ's kingdom has been put under his feet as his footstool. And so it will continue to be to believe that saints. Verse 6 says that he will shatter chiefs. This is perhaps a bad translation. That word there is rosh If you're Jewish, you'll know that word from like Rosh Hashanah, which is the high holy day. It simply means head, right? And it's actually singular. He will crush or shatter the head. Which head is it talking about? Well, it's the head that's told in the first proclamation of the gospel. Do you remember that? In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin, and the first promise of the gospel is given to Adam. It says, to Eve, sorry, it says what? That your seed will crush the serpent's head. Jesus Christ is the seed of Adam who crushes this serpent's head. And notice what the the text says. It says that he will crush that head over the wide earth. And that is what Christ is doing right now. He's crushing the serpent's head. He has done it at the cross. That was the final blow. But it's also being worked out through history. Like we said, his power is in heaven, exercised on earth through his people, through the proclamation of his word as that word, that powerful scepter goes out, his kingdom spreads. Now, I'll end here with this last verse. It's a puzzling verse to a lot of people. It says this, he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. What does this mean? Well, again, this is a word picture that we're supposed to imagine in our heads, right? Verses five and six, you saw this warrior just annihilate all of his enemies. And this is a picture of this warrior continuing on the way. And there's a brook. And he stops for a minute to take a drink, to refresh himself, and then lifts up his head, continuing in hot pursuit. This is an image of an unrelenting warrior. Why? Because God has said he will reign until every enemy is put under his feet. Our Christ, our warrior God, will not stop. He's unrelenting in his conquest. This is an image of how Christ's kingdom continues to spread, we are products of that. Um, There's actually a a picture, I'll put it up here, of a book that I'll recommend if you want to see how this has happened in history. It's called How Christianity Changed the World. And in it, the author goes through all history according to different uh, categories and explains how prior to Christianity, there was no established worth of life, either in the womb or close to the tomb that abortion was rampant even in the early days of the Roman Empire. He goes and talks about how Christianity established women's rights and equality for women. He talks about how Christianity established schools and hospitals. Have you ever realized that every hospital is called saint something? That's the inheritance of Christendom. This is how Christ has been spreading his kingdom, establishing it here, and he continues to do this even now. And we have to look through the eyes of faith, even though in our tiny speck of history. It seems like Christ's kingdom is wobbling. How many times has it been told that just when things look the worst, that God turns it around? That he uses it for his glory. We have to have confidence that this is the Christ that we serve. So to end this message, I ask one simple question to you. Where do you find yourself in this psalm? Where do you find yourself in this psalm? Are you a part of the troops of verse 3? That willingly assemble, are arrayed in holy garments, ready for action. Or are you asleep? Do you not realize that it's wartime? Or do you find yourself in verses 5 to 7 against this king? Well, the message to you is to repent in a hurry. Neutrality is not an option. We are either for him or against him. Saints, let's wake up. The times that we live in are times. We're called to battle, or we're battling from a place of victory that our Lord who leads us in the battle, has already objectively won that battle, sits at the highest place of honor and authority, and exercises his power through you, through me, as we proclaim his word and go out in faith. Let us do that with confidence. Let's pray. Our great God and King, we thank you for this text. Without it, perhaps we would not have known this about Christ, that he right now sits at the right hand of God, far above every rule and authority and reign. He's king of kings and lord of lords. We serve this king. He's a good king. He's a king who establishes justice in his kingdom, who pleads the widow's cause and takes up those who are um, broken down. God, we serve such an amazing king. God, give us confidence to believe this. Even in the midst of hard and troubling times, as we see a world around us shaking, let us... Have faith that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. God, we look to you. Help us to to be salt and light as you've called us to. Help us to be troops that go out in battle and not sit on the sideline. We don't want to be taking up the armor of God to sit on the couch and watch Netflix. God, help us to be out active and to serve you with joy, with song, with singing. May we do this now Jesus' For more resources and information about Hope Church Toronto West, please visit hopechurchtw.ca.